Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Hey, Ruth chapter 3, if you have your Bibles. And uh, we're in chapter 3, obviously. Um, I want to share with you the key events of chapter 1. I'm not going to share them with you. We're not going to go over them again. But uh, they took, path, took place on a path, excuse me. The events of chapter 1 took place on a path. The key events of chapter 2 that we looked at last week took place in a field. This morning, Ruth chapter 3, the key events are going to take place on a floor, and particularly a threshing floor. So we'll talk about that. Verse 1. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Um, if you haven't read the book of Ruth, if you're not familiar with this, I just encourage you, you might want to just after today, you know, after this afternoon, go home and just catch up on the first few chapters of Ruth, and maybe this one will make more sense. Um, we also have our teachings online, so you can, you can follow in there. Um, anyways, Naomi here is the mother-in-law of Ruth. And uh, Ruth's husband has passed away. Naomi's husband has passed away. So they're both widows. And Naomi is an older lady. Ruth is a younger woman. And so Naomi is genuinely concerned with Ruth. And so we see that here in verse 1. And she wants to seek security. Now what that's referring to, that word security, in the King James Version, it's rest. So it's translated either play, a place of rest or place of security. And what she's talking about is of a home, of being married with a husband and in a home. And that's, that's really what a marriage should be, a place of security and a place of rest. So she has a sincere concern for Ruth. Verse 2, Now Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. This is that floor we talked about. What is the threshing floor? It's a level outdoor place. Sometimes it was on top of a hill or on top of a rock. And that's where they would thresh the uh, sheaves of grain. Try saying that a bunch of times. Um, threshing she sells by the she I won't even try that. <laughs> threshing sheaves of grain. Um, and so what they would do basically is they would take the sheaves of the grain that they had harvested. They'd lay them out on the floor. And either they were beaten with what's known as a flail, kind of like, sort of like a broom in, in a sense, um, or they were dragged over them with a, a oxen would pull like a cart type of thing and, and, and a slide type of thing and, and dr uh, just kind of go across it. Because it's in an open place, like on a hill or, or on, on, you know, an open area there, the breezes would, the idea was the breezes would blow the chaff away from the grain, so then they'd have all the grain there and they could gather it up uh, at harvest time. So that's what a threshing floor, more or less, is. And so what Naomi is saying to uh, Ruth is talking about Boaz, and we talked about him chapters 1 and chapter 2, but she says, is he not our relative? Back in chapter 2, verse 20, she said, this man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, the closest relative 
to a dead person is pretty important. Even in our day and age, uh, the next of kin, you know, they're the, usually the ones that settle the deceased's estate, right? They're the ones that deal with the inheritance or whatever things are need to be, you know, financial things need to be done or whatever. That's what the next of kin does. Well, and that's in our day and age. Well, it was even more important in the days of Ruth in the days that we're reading about in the book of Ruth. The, the, the closest relative, the word, the name is the Goal, excuse me. It's the kinsman redeemer. And this, the kinsman redeemer, which is, you could just think of it as the next of kin. They had responsibilities in Ruth's day and age. What was the responsibilities that they had? Well, first of all, they had the responsibility to provide an heir for a brother who had died an heir for a brother who had died. That's what referred to as a leaving right marriage. And uh, if you're, f you could just, uh, you could look it up actually in Deuteronomy. Don't do it right now, but you could look it up if you want to uh, read more about it. But that was basically to provide an heir for a deceased brother. That was one of the responsibilities of the Goel. The next responsibility was to avenge the murder of a relative. That's also, you can find that in Deuteronomy chapter 19 as well. So those were the responsibilities of the Goel. That's what they, they, that's what they were required to do if those situations arose in their family. The Goel, the kinsman redeemer, also, in addition to the responsibility, they also had the privilege to do a few things. One of the privileges that they were uh, able to do was they were to redeem, they, they could redeem the land that a poor relative had sold outside of the family. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 25. The, uh, you know, in our day and age, if, uh, if you sell a house or you buy a house, uh, the contract is what's termed, and I'm not an expert in real estate, but it's return, uh, referred to as a fee simple basis. You, you purchase it on a fee simple basis. What does that mean? Beats me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> when you buy a house, basically you take full and complete ownership of that home, and not only the, the, the land and the, any buildings on the land, you have the right as the owner to sell the house to whoever you want, whenever you want. You also have the right when you pass away to, you know, will it to your children or whatever. That You had that right. That's, that's how property is purchased in um, the United States, residential anyways, on an, in general. Well, in Israel in those days, it wasn't the same. God had assigned each family of the tribe of Israel and all the different tribes, specific land throughout the promised land. Uh, so you, if you look at, if sometimes in your Bibles, if you look at your Old Testament, uh, that's, if you have a Bible that's got maps, sometimes they'll have the tribal locations of the land of Israel as, as it was apportioned uh, in the days of Joshua. So what God had intended was that each tribe and the families within that tribe would retain their property in pep Perpetuity, you know, forever, I guess. Uh, getting tongue tight. tight. No, I'm good. I, was just I need a prop. No. Um, he intended for the land to remain within each tribe. And so property wasn't sold on a fee simple basis. It was so, sold on a lease ownership basis. And so what did that mean? Well, property could still be sold to anyone. You could sell it to anybody throughout the land of Israel. But 
at the time of Jubilee, at the year of Jubilee, which was the 50th year, every 50th year, property, whatever was sold, it would be reverted back to the family of that tribe. It, and and, and it, the, basically what God was doing was he was preventing one tribe or one family from becoming land barons. You know, in our day and age, someone who's wealthy enough, I mean, they could, they could buy up all the property and they could, you know, they have a monopoly on things. Well, God didn't want that in, in Israel during those days. And so it kept one person or one tribe from becoming land barons. So property would be valuated based on how many years until the, until the year of Jubilee. So if the year of Jubilee had just occurred, like maybe last year, and so you've got 49 years until the next year of Jubilee, that would be the most valuable price that you would pay for the home. That would, it would be, or the land, because usually for land, so it would be, it'd be worth a lot more because you had that many years that you could farm the land, you could harvest and make money off the land, basically. The closer, of course, you got to Jubilee, then the cheaper the land would go because you only have a couple seasons, you know, however many years you'd have. Um, however, before the year of Jubilee, before that 50th year, a kinsman redeemer could be asked or they could choose because they had that privilege to buy back the land from whoever it was sold to uh, on behalf of their relative who had sold it. Or if it was a poor relative that, you know, they wanted to, they wanted to redeem it, maybe they needed the cash, you know, kind of like you pawn something. You need the cash, and now, now you want to buy it back? Well, if you were too poor, then the kinsman redeemer could do that for you. That was one of the privileges of the kinsman redeemer. One of the other uh, privileges of the kinsman redeemer, I think I already showed that there, is that they could redeem a relative who had been sold into slavery. You say, whoa. Slavery, that's not a very good word to say nowadays, right? It's, it's, you can read about it in Leviticus 25. What that's referring to was not someone that was put into slavery involuntarily. What it basically was is in the land of Israel, if you had debts and you couldn't pay it, uh, you, wouldn't, you didn't just ignore your debts, you know, like people do today. They're just like, oh, I'm not going to pay my debt, you know, I haven't come and collect things. Well, basically, in that day and age, you could sell yourself into slavery. And basically, you would work off your debt to whoever you owed money to. But if you were so poor that you couldn't, you had sold yourself into slavery, you couldn't pay yourself, you know, you couldn't pay your way out of it or whatever, a kinsman redeemer had that privilege. It wasn't a responsibility. It was a privilege. They could do it if they chose to or if you asked them to. Now, we need to keep in mind that Boaz he was one of the close relatives of Ruth and ultimately, of, actually, of Naomi, but also of Ruth. Um, but he wasn't the nearest relation. He wasn't the actual Goel. Um, there was one that was closer than him. And it was his duty, this other person, this unnamed person, it was his duty to take up the case. We talked about the Levite marriage uh, for uh, Ruth, the widow. But time went on. You know, they had come back to, we talked about it last week, or actually chapter one, they came back to Bethlehem from Moab, and they're sitting there for a while, you know, and, and uh, we talked about chapter two where uh, Boaz, he's the landowner, he's a relative of Naomi, just blesses Ruth and Naomi. And, uh, but time's going on, and nothing's happened. That other kinsman redeemer who had the responsibility he had the responsibility to, to uh, raise up an heir for Ruth. He never stepped forward to do it. And so 
time's going on, harvest is drawing to a close, and Naomi is growing impatient. And she's anxious about Ruth's future. So what Naomi does is she hatches a plan for Ruth to appeal to Boaz, the next in line, basically, to fulfill the role of the kinsman redeemer. You know, if they made a, a, a musical out of the story of Ruth, I could think of the perfect song that would go here right now. It'd be like, you know, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. <laughs> find me a find, catch me a catch. I, you, you, I know what you're thinking. Don't quit your day job. <laughs> uh, why not appeal to the designated Goel? Why didn't, why didn't Naomi go to that first one whose responsibility it was? Why didn't he go to, and it, it may have been Elimelech's brother. Elimelech was the husband of Naomi. It might have been his brother. It's quite possible that uh, Naomi's thinking, man, anybody but that guy, you know? He's one of those brothers-in-laws that's like, man, I hope, I hope the liver right marriage never comes into play, you know, this guy's strange. Um, We'll find out, actually, in chapter 4, that he was actually unwilling. He was willing on one aspect, but he wasn't, un he wasn't willing on another aspect. He was a little selfish guy. Anyways, so Naomi's quite possibly thinking, man, anybody but that guy. You know, it's interesting. We had, years ago, I, I, I wasn't always a pastor. I used to work for a company, and I would travel once in a while with a company. And I remember one time... I was going, it was getting ready to leave, and a friend of ours knew that I was going to leave, and so he told my wife, Teresa, he said, man, if anything happens, you know, the car breaks down, you got a problem at the house, call me. I'll come and fix it. And, uh, okay, well, thanks a lot. And uh, anyways, sure enough, I'm out of town. It's, it's funny, whenever I would go on trips out of town, that's when the car would break, that's when the plumbing would back up. It's just, it was like clockwork. Um, and so sure enough, I was out of town, and Teresa got a flat tire. And she called, now this guy, it wasn't like, hey, it's your responsibility. To come. No, he said, hey, if you have any issues, I'm the designated man. I'm the designated repairman. You call me. Well, we had an issue, and she called him, and he's like, ah. You know, he didn't want to come. Eventually, he did come, right? I think he did at some point. Or did you change it yourself? I don't remember. It was years ago. Yeah. I, I could name the name, but it's nobody here. But, I mean, I could name. I'm not going to do that. No. <laughs> Anyways. You know, sometimes people say, hey, I want to be the designated so-and-so. I want to serve in this capacity. I want to minister in this area and stuff. And, and that's fine. That's awesome. And, but sometimes the situation, okay, now we need your service, and they're nowhere to be found. Or they're unwilling to. Or, they, you know, there's something, and they, they come up with it, and you go, okay, I guess I can't use you. So what do we do? We go to the next person available. Somebody who's willing, somebody who's available. What, availability is a big thing. It's just like, I'm available. And so sometimes we do that. Well, I think this is what Naomi is doing. She's going to the next person. And, you know, the thing about Boaz is that he already demonstrated some really good qualities we talked about last week. He already demonstrated a care for Ruth. He wanted to protect her while she was out in the fields. He was very generous towards her. He cared about her. And he did it even above the requirements of the law. This guy, his heart was in it. His heart was to minister. You know, he, he, he observed the law of the Lord as far as allowing the poor to glean from his land. We talked about that last week. But he went above 
above and beyond, man. He just blessed Ruth and Naomi. Not only that, this guy had a really good reputation with his workers. That says a lot for an employer to have a good reputation with his workers. This guy, in other words, he's a gem. And you're always thinking, man, we can't let that guy go. <laughs> you know, he's a gem. Don't let him go, you know. If you know of a person, don't let him go. So Naomi says to Ruth there in verse 3, Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. And you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what you should do. That's a very strange, you know, suggestion. Uh, I, I'm sure there's a lot of different people that interpret it all different ways. One of the things that I've noticed, though, is that Naomi's character is kind of revealed in scriptures, and it, it was already revealed earlier. She is not portrayed in scripture as being a great woman of faith. She really isn't. She and Elimelech left Bethlehem during a famine. And, you know, I can understand it. If there was a famine, I might be tempted to move away from Rochester to go a place where I could get food or a job or something. But she and her husband left when the going got tough. That's just, that's just the bottom line. They left when the going got tough. And then she returned when she ran out of options. She ran out of options, then she came back to Israel. Why do I say that? You know, and by the way, let me say this. It's not bad that she returned. In fact, it was a good thing. Anytime, anytime you return, and in the, you know, we talked about last week, anytime you return back to the Lord, man, that's a great thing. So I'm not, I'm not saying she shouldn't have returned. She should have returned, but she should have never left in the first place. And then when she ran out of options, you know, you get the hint because her husband died and then her younger, her two boys, they marry. One of them is Ruth. Malon, I think, is the one that married Ruth. Chilion, another son, married Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah. And uh, anyways, those two guys die. And for 10 years... There, you know, she's living with her sons and her and her daughter-in-laws for ten years. No, no talk about going back to Bethlehem. It's uh, it's only when there's no more options. The two sons have died. They're all widows. They're destitute. It's like, okay, let's go back. You know. If you're in a bad situation and you're at the bottom of your rope and you go, you know what, I think I'm going to go back to the Lord, go back to the Lord. It's never a bad thing, okay? God's not going to say, ah, oh, you should have came earlier. I'm forget you, you know? God will never do that. He'll accept you as you are. He loves you. So don't, don't get the wrong impression here. But... Ruth, or excuse me, Naomi, I think is just, she doesn't, she doesn't stand out as a woman of faith here. Ruth, however, in contrast, is scripture portrays her as a great woman of faith. And she left everything, house and home and family, opportunity to marry a Moabite husband after her other husband had passed away. She left everything to go to a foreign land. She left everything to minister to Naomi, her mother-in-law. And she also left to serve the God of Israel because Moab, the Moabites worshiped foreign deities. She left all that. She's, a great, she's portrayed as a great woman of faith. Not only that, but she denies herself to go serve, to go work in the, in the fields, to glean and to, to, to earn something for her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. She's got great character qualities. So the issue is, or the question is, why have Ruth approached secretly to the threshing floor under the cover of night? 
waiting for the perfect time after Boaz has got a full belly and he's had his nightcap. You might say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor. <laughs> wait a minute, you don't, there's no alcohol involved in here. I kind of wonder. And the reason why I say that some people say, well, you know, it was just grape juice. He just, she was just saying, wait till he ate his meal and drank his juice. And then go, it just doesn't make sense, does it? What difference would it make for waiting until this guy's had his cup of juice before you go and approach him? There's something else going on here. Why doll herself up? bathing, changing clothes, and putting on perfume. And some people, I've, I've gone to some commentators and say, well, she's changing out of her mourning garments, and now she's putting on a dress saying that now she's, she's done mourning, and now she's available to be married. I don't buy that. I really don't. Why do I not buy that? Because when she was out in the fields working in chapter 2 that we looked at, remember what Boaz did? Boaz told the young men, Stay away from that girl. <laughs> she might look available. She might. She's by herself. She looks vulnerable, but stay away. If she had been in mourning clothes in that culture, she would have been visually off limits. It was, okay, she's in mourning, man, just leave her alone. She wasn't. Naomi, and this is my take. I'm not saying thus saith the Lord. Naomi, in my opinion, is not a great woman of faith. She's trying to help the Lord fulfill his plan. She's doing everything she can think of to manipulate Boaz to perform the role of the kinsman redeemer. This is not a unique story. I mean, this is a unique story, but that manipulating someone or trying to help out God is not unique to the Bible. Do you remember when Sarah tried to, you know, help God with providing a, a son for Abraham? God didn't need Sarah's help. They didn't need, they didn't need to do what they did. Rebecca was a, manipulated um, in, the, in the case of her son, Jacob, with Isaac. Jacob, their son, man, he was a manipulator from day one. Actually, before day one, he was in the womb, he was a manipulator. And you read the story in the book of Genesis. So that is not unique to the Bible. Another thing to point out is culturally, harvest time was kind of considered party time. I mean, you have been work, you've worked hard all year, and, and now it's harvest time. It's time to kick back. It was kind of a party time. At the harvest time, people tended to let down their hair, so to speak. We saw it in the book of Genesis when Judah and his good-for-nothing friends were shearing sheep. That's the end of their harvest with the sheep farmers. The end of their harvest is to shear the sheep. And it's party time for Judah and his buddies. You can read about that in Genesis. We won't go into that. I think here Naomi is trying to take advantage of the timing. So it's a perfect timing. Her understanding of men. Hey, make, make sure, make sure he's, you know, everything's just perfect there. Um, and she's trying to make things happen. What Naomi has not learned is that God is in control of the circumstances. God is arranging the circumstances. Remember in chapter 2, it was no coincidence that Ruth just happened to glean in the field of Boaz. She didn't know who Boaz was at that point. She had no idea where she was gleaning, but God directed her to the field of Boaz. It was no coincidence that Boaz happened to go back to the field to bless his workers and go, hey, who's that chick, you know? I don't think he said it that way, but you know what I'm getting at. It was no coincidence that Boaz noticed Ruth. It was all God's timing. 
Naomi, at that point, had no idea either. She had no, nothing to do with it. Ruth, for that matter, had nothing to do with it. It was all God arranging those circumstances. And so Naomi should have learned that. And here's the point I want to make. Let God do alone, or let God do what God alone does best. Sometimes we try to help God out. Man, just let God do what he does best. He's better at being God than we are. He's better at being the Holy Spirit than we are. So let God do what he does. Don't try to make things happen, happen according to your will and your desires. What do you do? Well, just surrender the situation to the Lord and watch what he would do. And, that, and if Naomi had just cooled her jets, man, things would have happened. God was already arranging the circumstances. Why was she told to uncover his feet? Well, we'll talk about that in a couple verses. But now having said that, I want to I share something with you. In John chapter 11, verse 49, and we were, were in John chapter 11 on Wednesday nights, and we, just, we didn't get to that yet, so it's kind of a sneak preview to our Bible study in two weeks from now. But in John 11, chapter, four, uh, chapter 11, verse 49, the Jewish leader, leaders at this point, are, they're plotting to kill Jesus. So they're gathering together, trying to figure out how they can entrap him. They want to kill him because he's, he's healing people. He's giving sight to the blind. we got to kill this guy because he's threatening our power. He's threatening our position. And so it says there in verse 49, And one of them, Caiaphas, Caiaphas excuse me, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together and one the children of God who were scattered abroad. See, the plan of Caiaphas was kill Jesus. You know, it's expedient so that we don't lose our power. It's, it's expedient that one man die instead of the whole nation suffer. What he didn't know is that he was saying prophecy, man. The Messiah would die so that none of the nation, not only the nation of Israel, but you and I wouldn't suffer damnation. We wouldn't suffer condemnation. So Jesus died. So he, maybe, he might have been saying this, but God had a plan even in that. Well, this plan of Naomi's, little did you know, or little did she know, this scene of manipulation is painting a prophetic picture of how the church is to draw close to our kinsman redeemer. Recall what Ruth was told to do. She was told to wash. You know, Paul says we are washed by the water of the word in Ephesians chapter 5. And so for you and I, you want to draw close to the Lord, man, stay in the word, get in the word, stay in the word, be in the word. It's important to stay in the word. Ruth was told to change her clothes. Isaiah 61 tells you and I to put away the garment of heaviness and instead put on a garment of praise. Ruth was told to anoint herself. And any time you read about anointing in the, in the Bible, it's referring to prophetically or symbolically of the Holy Spirit, the work of the, of the Spirit in the life of a person. And you and I, we're to walk according to the Spirit, the Bible tells us. Ruth was to go to the threshing floor. And everywhere in the Bible, a threshing floor is a picture of separation, literally separating the grain from the chaff, but also spiritually separating from ungodly things. 
Paul exhorts you and I in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17 and 18, to separate ourselves from the fleshly things of this world. This is my opinion, okay? I don't believe Ruth needed to do those things that Naomi said in order to get Boaz to redeem her. I don't think she needed to manipulate Boaz into it. Likewise, we don't wash ourselves. I can't wash myself. I can't change our own clothes. And I'm talking spiritually. I mean, I can be into the word of God, but, but you know, I can't anoint myself. That's a work of the spirit. All these things, we don't do those things in order to manipulate our kinsman redeemer into redeeming us. There's nothing you can do to make God want to save you. God loves you already. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of the cross, Christ died for us on the cross. So there's nothing you have to, in fact, there's nothing you can do to manipulate God into redeeming him. So why do we do these things? We do these things because we want to draw close to the Lord for what he's done for us. It's just a, resp- it's a, it's a loving response. Man, I love the Lord so much. He gave it all to me. Man, I, want, I just want to be in his presence. I want to, I want to walk according to his Holy Spirit. Man, I just want to, I want to serve him. I want to, I want to bless him. I'm not doing it for salvation. I, he's, I'm saved by grace. So are you. But we de- do these things because we love the Lord because he redeemed us. Well, let's get back to our story. Verse 5. And this is Ruth speaking. And she said to Naomi, she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the woman, that the man, excuse me, was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. Could you imagine? That'd be that'd be kind of weird, right? We weren't expecting that. Why was Boaz at the threshing floor? Well, threshing floors we talked about it was where they separated the wheat from the chaff or, or barley, whatever it is, and so the grain there it was always a place where robbers could come in or, or marauders from other from other nations come in and and rob you know steal the grain, and so what they would do at the harvest time is somebody would stay there with the grain overnight to pre- prevent it from being ripped off. So someone always slept on the floor until the grain was moved to wherever they stored it. And so that's what Boaz is doing. It says, it happened at midnight that the man was startled. I love that, you know. It happened. In other words, Ruth didn't like snore real big or something. Like, what was that, you know? And um, I sometimes wake myself up. It's like, who snored? It was was myself, you know. Um, It's funny, you know. Even when we try to make things happen, we don't have to. God's hands are never tied. They're never tied. I I have a feeling, it's not in the scriptures, but I probably, I think that the Lord probably sent one of the angels, hey, go kick that guy in the side, you know, wake him up. He's got to see that there's a woman there. Um, Anyways, he wakes up. However it happened, he wakes up, and lo and behold, there's a woman lying there at his feet. Verse 9 And he said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. 
take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. When she says, take your maidservant under your wing, now he didn't have wings, okay, he's not a big bird, but he, this is just basically a metaphor that young birds would, would, would run under the wings of their mother to be protected from other birds of prey. And so that's the picture that's being uh, described there. And I don't know for a fact, but I know when my feet get cold, I like to cover them. So I think part of just uncovering his feet was, you know, in the cool of the night, because it's, it, it's not in a humid climate. It's a very arid climate. So it's hot during the day, but it can get pretty cold at night. You, those of you that have been in the desert or in the dry places, you know what that's like. And so I'm thinking in the cool of the night, man, he's going he's gonna to wake up. He's going to want to cover his feet. And uh, so he has a choice. He's, he wakes up and he's got his choice. Is he going to cover his feet or is he going to also cover this woman, Ruth, who's laying at his feet? Why do I say it that way? Well, you'll recall in chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz blessed Ruth. And he said this, The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. What Boaz is saying to Ruth is, hey, you've come to the Lord for refuge. Man, may the Lord bless you and reward you for coming to him. And I think what Naomi is, is instructing Ruth to do is taking that, because obviously Ruth you know, conveyed that to Naomi, so Naomi knew what Boaz had said. And so Naomi, this is Naomi's way of kind of calling Boaz on the carpet, saying, okay, you know, you want to bless, you're, you're asking the Lord to bless uh, Ruth. Well, here's your opportunity. Why don't you bless Ruth? Why don't you be the Kingsman Redeemer? Why don't you take Ruth under your cover? You know, I was looking up that, the covering over um, in a Jewish culture. And even to this day, I, I just discovered this, even to this day in some Jewish weddings, a groom will cover his bride with his talit um, during the ceremony and it's to signify that she's coming underneath his protection. Even to this day, the Jewish, some Jewish people do that in, in weddings. You know what James said in chapter 2, verse 15, 16? He said, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what is a profit? You know, if someone comes and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're in a need and they're, they're you know, they're, they're in a situation and, and you've got the ability to bless them and you go, oh man, may the Lord bless you, but you don't do anything about it. James says, you're not really helping them. Yeah, you pronounced a blessing on them, but they have a literal, physical, material need. And so if you just say, ah, God bless you, well, it's nice you said that, but it doesn't mean anything. Naomi is basically instructing Ruth to say to Boaz, hey, you pronounce that blessing over Ruth. Why don't you be the instrument of that blessing? Same thing applies to us. Man, if you see a need and you're able to meet it, man, meet it. Now, sometimes you see a need and you're not able to do anything about it. I mean, it happens all the time. It's just like, I wish I could help, but I literally can't help. But if you see a need and you are able to truthfully meet it, man, meet it. Often, the Lord reveals others' needs to us not so that you can call the pastor on the phone and say, Pastor, there's a need. You need to fill it up. Or the church needs to do this. I've, I've had those calls before. 
You only see need in the church, whatever it is, and then the church should meet it. It's kind of like having a body with hundreds of eyes and only one hand, you know. <laughs> we see everything, and but you only have one hand. That's going to be a busy hand because a busy hand is going to be doing everything that the eyes see. Verse 10. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. Kind of gives us a clue that Boaz was probably older, much older than Ruth. Verse 11, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am clo a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and this is not any kind of a weird thing. There's no, there's no impropriety there. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also he said, Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her, and then she went into the city. Listen, Naomi's scheme, and I'm just going to call it what I think it is, a scheme, it could have gone horribly wrong. It could have gone horribly, horribly wrong. She was worried that Boaz wouldn't want to be the kinsman redeemer. They wouldn't want to fill that role of kinsman redeemer. So she manipulated as much as she could to prevent that from happening. He could have said, man, I no way. I'm not going to do it. He could have you know, seen right through it and said, forget it. I feel like I'm being you know, manipulated or whatever. Another thing that I think is could have gone horribly wrong, what she hadn't, I think, considered, sending a single girl, Ruth, at night to meet with a man in the darkness. Nobody's around in the cover in an isolated place. Man, that is just plain old not wise counsel. Knowing, knowing men and women, that's just not a, not a good idea to do that. Fortunately for Naomi and ultimately for Ruth, Boaz is a great man of not only wealth, but of valor. And Ruth is too. I'm not, I'm not saying it was just, you know, good thing Boaz was a good guy. No, they both are. They both are people of great faith. And they're, they're in scripture, they're the ones that, are, that receive the shining, you know, they have the shining reputations here. So it says, so she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, this is Boaz speaking, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Why did he say that? He's not embarrassed by Ruth. Boaz is a man of character, and he doesn't even want to have any suspicion of impropriety. There was nothing that went on there, you know. But he didn't even want the suspicion of any impropriety. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 6, 3. He says, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. And I like the King James Version of 1 Thessalonians 5, 22. It instructs us to abstain from all appearance of evil. I've done premarital counseling with people and sometimes uh, the couple will say you know uh, we're 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 living in the same house but we're, we're we're not you know 
having that kind of relationships with each other, you know, but we're, and I'll say, well, praise God that you're not, but you know what? You have the appearance that you are. <laughs> and if you're believers, man, you got quite the, you know, people don't know that. They just assume that you're doing what everybody else in the world's doing. So we're to avoid the, even the appearance of evil. And so I think that's what Boaz is doing here. Boaz is not only concerned about his reputation. I don't want anybody to think that I'm a, you know, a, a loose guy or whatever. He's concerned about Ruth's reputation. I really do. He wants to honor Ruth's reputation. And he doesn't want to jeopardize what he is just about to do in the morning. So here's this. This is... I really struggled with this this chapter this week, and my wife can testify to. We sat and had a long conversation about this. I was sharing some stuff, me and she's like, "Are you serious?" <laughs> we were, you know, it, I really struggled through this this passage. But this is what I think. What Naomi tried to arrange in a secret, solitary place at night, Boaz in chapter four is going to accomplish in broad daylight. In the courtroom of his day, which was the, the, the gate of the city, and before lots of witnesses. It's not going to be any you know, dark, secret, okay, let's make this arrangement. It's all out in the open. And Boaz is a man of great, great character. Naomi also seems to be only concerned with Boaz fulfilling that required role of the kinsman redeemer of providing an heir uh, to marry Ruth and then father a child so that the posterity of Elimelech would continue. But listen, Boaz is not only going to fulfill that required role, but in chapter 4, he's also going to fulfill the role of purchasing back the title deed of the land that was sold. He's going above and beyond. It's like, you know, she was only thinking one thing. Boaz is going to do much more. You know, I was mentioned it in chapter 1. When Elimelech, who was Naomi's husband, when they moved to Moab, I'm sure that they sold their property. Because when Naomi comes back to Bethlehem, she doesn't have, they don't talk about her having a land or fields or anything like that. So Elimelech probably sold the, the, the tribal, the family farm or whatever um, to somebody. And it was basically to finance their move. And so now Naomi, she's, she's way, ran out of options. She comes back as a poor destitute widow. There's no way she can purchase back that land because that would sustain her and, her and Ruth. There's no way she can do it. And so in chapter 4, Boaz is going to go above and beyond and above and beyond what's required and do what's even not required to buy back that land. You know, that reminds me so much of your and my kinsman redeemer. Paul wrote this, Ephesians 5, or excuse me, Ephesians 3, verse 20 to 21. Now to him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, According to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Yesterday we had our men's meeting and, and uh, um, I asked one of the elders in our church, Chad, to share his testimony. And he got up and, and was sharing his testimony. And it's, it's a wonderful testimony. Uh, very uh, fitting for just being there where we were and everything. It just it was great. Um, I loved it. When he got done, one of the things I thought is, you know, he sh was sharing how Christ changed his life and, and how the steps that led to that. And, and the whole time I was thinking, I thought, you know, 
I don't know a single person that has given their heart to Christ that's ever rejected or, you know, like said, man, I wish I had never done that. You know, that was a big mistake. I, I don't know a single person that's ever done that. Not only does Jesus save us, but he does ab exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask and think. You know, a lot of us are like Naomi. Not only in the sense of trying to help the Lord fulfill his will. I know I've done it before. Lord, I'm going to make this work out so that you can bless this. You know, and, you know, I try to do things. But Naomi is only focused on one role of the kinsman redeemer, and that's to fulfill the Leverite marriage requirement for Ruth. And like Naomi... We want our kinsman redeemer to be the savior, to save us from condemnation so that we can spend eternity not in the lake of fire, but in heaven, right? That's, we, that's why we want to go to the Lord, to save us from hell. But Jesus not only wants to redeem you and me so that we don't go uh, to hell, that we'll go to heaven, but he wants to redeem your life today from everything that enslaves you. He doesn't want to just be your savior. He wants to set you free from whatever has a grip on you. The love of money or the greed for money. I mean, it has a grip on people. He wants to redeem you from that. The grip of materialism. Maybe the grip of an ungodly or an unhealthy relationship. Maybe a destructive habit or an addiction. Maybe even the time that you've... I mean, I look back at the time before I gave my heart back to the Lord. It's like, man, I wasted so much time. So many beautiful opportunities that I could have... You know what? I, I can't go back. Paul says, man, I don't look back at what I... I just press forward. But God has a way of redeeming the time. He's great at doing that. So what I'm getting at, the Lord doesn't want to just be your Savior. He wants to be the Lord of every aspect of your life. He'll do much more exceedingly abundantly above what you ask or think. Verse 16. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? It's probably still dark out, I'm guessing. Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me. For he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter of this day. I'm glad chapter 3 kind of closes this way because there's still hope for Naomi. She's not a terrible person. She's generally concerned for Ruth. I don't, I don't, I don't fault that. I just think she, maybe she went about it not the right way. There's still hope for Ruth. She's hearing all this, man. She gets it. And so she says, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. Man, isn't that a hard thing to do? Sit still and just let the Lord do what he's going to do. That's hard. It's very hard. Psalms 37, verse 3 through 5. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. You're going through a tough time. Look back, man. Has God been faithful to you in the past? Just feed on that. Keep reminding yourself, man, God's been faithful. He's never, he's never failed me. He's never let me down. I'm going to feed on his faithfulness. Feed on his faithfulness. Verse 4, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he'll bring it to pass. He doesn't need our help. He'll do it. Listen, if you feel the need to manipulate people, 
to get them to do what you want to do. And that, you know, there's uh, the world's full of manipulative, manipulative people to one degree or another. If you feel the need, man, I got to, I got to kind of say this or do this to get somebody to do something that I want them to do. That's manipulation, by the way. Learn from Naomi. I just got a confession to make to you. I've been manipulated in the past. Okay, that's it. I'm done. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I've been manipulated in the past. And you know what? Usually, I don't realize I'm being manipulated until afterwards. And afterwards, when I find out that I've been manipulated, I get really like, oh, I don't like being manipulated. And I have a very negative per view of the person who's manipulated me. Listen, Naomi's manipulation of Boaz could have turned really, really bad. Thankfully for Naomi, it didn't. If you feel like you need to manipulate people, man, learn from Naomi. Learn, don't, don't do the same thing. If you feel like you need to manipulate God to get him to do what you want him to do, <laughs> learn from Naomi. You don't need to. In fact, you can't manipulate God. You can't. Plain and simple. So stop trying to. So I love what Naomi says here. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. So Naomi was waiting for the nearest kinsman redeemer. And he hadn't done a thing. He was a deadbeat. He hadn't done anything up to that point. Boaz, man, he's going to do it all in one day, even more than what she asked. He's going to do everything in one day. I love that. Luke 23, verse 42 to 43 is speaking about the thief on the cross. You guys know the story. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, surely I say to you today, you'll be with me in, parad in paradise. He didn't say, wait a minute. I want to make sure you don't mock me. You know, the last, I got three more hours. I want to make sure you don't, you know, I'm a, I'm a, there's no probation period. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. What am I trying to say? Man, don't wait. Don't wait. God will do it all. If you hear his voice today, today is the day of salvation. And all those things I talked about that, you know, enslave us and have a grip on us, he is waiting. He's willing and able to redeem you of those things. Don't wait. Don't wait. You know, sometimes you say, you know, I, I feel like God's not doing anything in my life. You know, the only thing that holds you back from God doing anything in your life, it's you. It really is. The only thing that's holding you back is you. So this is the story I think of. This is how I, I look at chapter 3. And, and uh, you know, I think Naomi, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to paint her in a negative light. I mean, I guess I did to, a, to an extent. She was generally concerned. She's not a bad person. I just think that she didn't need to do what she did because God was already in the works. God was already arranging the circumstances. Hopefully that's a lesson for each of us. You know, we don't need to manipulate God and certainly don't need to manipulate other people. So the, the theme today is don't manipulate, okay? <laughs> All right. Hey, why don't you stand? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.